One, two, okay, all right, good. Wonderful, let's get started. Um, for those of you that were not here last week, um, we covered uh, in this study of practical ecclesiology, we, we covered a little bit of the doctrine of the church, both the local and the universal church, and we kind of gave some distinctions. What's the difference between the local church and what's the difference between the universal church? And of course, the universal church being comprised of all of, of God's people, all of God's elect people for all time, from all time, from beginning to end, uh, that have been saved, ever will be saved. And the local church, of course, is the church that is comprised of the visible church, uh, visible believers, that is to say, confessing believers in Jesus Christ and their profession of faith in Christ as evidence of their election. And uh, uh, our focus was more with the local church because that's what, this, uh, that's what this whole series was meant to be, is to be a discussion on practical ecclesiology. And so today, what we're going to talk about is... Uh, the, uh, the, the nature of pastoral ministry or the church and pastoral ministry. So let me pray for us and we'll get started, okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for this wonderful Lord's Day that you have made. Thank you for all your people that are here today. Thank you for uh, sustaining us and giving us the health, Lord, to be able to attend um, the church today and be able to come together, encourage one another in fellowship and to be under your word and to be encouraged by uh, the fellowship of the saints, the singing of your hymns and your songs, the praise unto you, O God. We pray that you would use the means of grace today, the Lord's Supper, the Word of God, uh, the fellowship of, of the saints. Use all of these means of grace to strengthen us, to build us up in the most holy faith, as your Word declares. And help us, Lord, give us a mind to understand your Word today. Give us a mind and a heart to not only apprehend, but also to apply the scripture and your word to our lives. Help us to come into greater conformity, Lord, with the doctrine of the church as it is taught in scripture. We pray that our minds would be governed by your word in every area of our lives. Uh, and we just ask, Lord, that you would uh, show us, Lord, none of us here are perfect. None of us here have arrived. We are all growing. We are all seeking to grow into a greater and more pure understanding of the Christian faith and how we can live that out for your glory. And so, God, we pray today, teach us, Lord, through your good word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, again, uh, just to kind of set the pace, I thought I'd take us to a passage of Scripture from Hebrews uh, this is Hebrews uh, chapter 13, kind of gets to the very heart and soul of what we're talking about today in terms of pastoral uh, leadership or the ministry of pastoral leadership in the church. And this is Hebrews 13, 17. Let me just read it for us. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, that's the second statement in the book of Hebrews. Earlier on uh, in Hebrews, if you look at verse 7, uh, the author of Hebrews has already addressed this in a sense when he says in verse 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. And so that is another reference to spiritual leadership, that we are to consider the faith and imitate uh, or, or consider the conduct and imitate the faith of those who lead us. And so therefore, uh, pastoral leadership is all about imitation. 
It is all about giving an example that the people of God can follow, setting a bar, setting a standard of truth, a standard of holiness, a standard of spirituality that the saints can follow uh, into. Uh, but notice there, guys, the, um, the words of Hebrews 13 and how pivotal these things are. First of all, uh, pastoral ministry carries with it a very serious injunction, an imperative, a command. Obey. And uh, that's not a very popular command today. You just go around telling people to obey. You know, not only do children not like it, adults don't like it anymore (laughs) than children. Uh, But uh, but that is the injunction. The injunction is to be obedient. And uh, and, and so we're going to have to sort of uh, understand, well, what does that obedience entail? What do we obey in regard to the leaders? Um, uh, A scripture that comes to mind, you don't have to turn there, but... Maybe I can just read it, but in first, uh, no, second, I always do that. First or second Corinthians, both books are good, but in second Corinthians, the apostle Paul, as it related to the issue of church discipline, one of the things that Paul uh, was insistent about is that he wanted to make sure the church was going to be obedient, and so he says to them in second Corinthians chapter two, verse nine, He says, I wrote to you so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. And so obedience in all things there in relationship to pastoral ministry had to do whether or not the church was willing to follow through with all of the steps of church discipline. So that's just one one example in terms of the obedience there. But here it says also obey your leaders and submit to them. Uh, And so here is you know, uh, where, we're, where we come to the dynamic of, you know, what people call an over and under relationship of shepherd and sheep and what that should look like. Uh, well, obviously, it looks like uh, what uh, this is talking about here is it, it, it's an issue of submission. And uh, where that comes from, of course, is the submission that we all have to Christ. Um, this is so crucial for ecclesiology, Uh, When it comes to the doctrine of the church, the issue of submission uh, is really important because the entire Christian life is a matter of submission. I don't know if you've really thought about this, but uh, I've actually done in my Logos Bible software where I've gone in and I've traced all the verses that talk about submitting to different things. You know, submitting to the government, submitting to wives, submitting to their husbands, children submitting to their parents, you know, submitting to one another in the fear of God, submitting to your elders, uh, Jesus' submission to the will of God. I mean, you just have this entire theology in the Bible of submission so that the Christian life looks nothing like what so much popular culture and even popular evangelical culture suggests. And that is that suggests the suggestion that you and I are to live autonomously, that you and I are to live in sort of an individualism uh, mindset, right? With a mindset of individuality, autonomy, meaning free from anyone else or free from the constraints of anything else, right? That is the opposite of what Christianity teaches. I mean, think about it. It really is a huge issue because what it says is that our daily lives and our lives in the church are understood in, in, in terms of this submission so that there is a healthy humility that results from this and a healthy fear. And so um, 
over and over, maybe you guys can think of passages of scripture that talk about this, but over and over in scripture, we are constantly taught to walk in fear, to obey in fear. I mean, I'm just thinking of scriptures in my head. Uh, Philippians chapter two, verse 12 and 13. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Because we have this accountability to the word of God and to each other, um, and that we're supposed to walk in this submissive fashion. Anybody have questions about that? Oh, by the way, if you have questions, please ask your question and I'll repeat it so everyone can hear because we're in a bigger room. Uh, Cameron, yes, sir. Second Corinthians chapter two, verse nine, yeah. Uh, yes, Russell. That's a good question. Is, 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 are you asking that question, Russell, in any area specifically or just in general? Just in general. Well, I would say, uh, again, the, 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 the fear and the obedience is kind of like in a pecking order. We all fear and obey God. We all fear and obey God's word. And then we all fear the, the, the leadership that God has put over us. And it has to go in that order, right? And so it's actually one of the things I'm going to talk about here in terms of the extent of pastoral authority. But you do not have any obligation to fear me or to obey me or Pastor Lynn or any other pastor whenever, those, uh, whenever the, the uh, requirements exceed biblical limits. Uh, you know, uh, I may not like what you eat for dinner, but you don't have to obey me in, as far as your diet goes, okay? You're free to eat whatever you want, okay? Uh, I may think you eat too much, uh, but you might think you're, you're okay eating 3,000 calories a day, you know? <laughs> right? So uh, we might have differences like that. Uh, and so as long as pastoral ministry is operating within the context of what is explicitly commanded in Scripture, things that all... See, what the pastor is is really somebody... Uh, I think one of the most appropriate titles for a pastor is poimain, shepherd, right? Because he shepherds you. He guides you. He kind of taps you along. Come on, this way. No, don't go that way, right? He's guiding you along the path. And so it's doesn't, it doesn't look like an overlord, right? Even Jesus said... The Gentiles, they lord it over their people, but in the kingdom, it's not that way. And so Paul says in, uh, I think it's in 2 Corinthians as well, uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, he's very careful to qualify that pastoral ministry is not a matter of lording over people. And so what I would say is, um, it, it's, it's a very broad thing, but it mainly has to do with the commands of Scripture, Russell. Sure, sure, of course, because, you know, Old Testament shepherds, and I actually have a text for the Old Testament here, but uh, Old Testament shepherds, you know, they, everything was Torah sensitive, and so all of your life was to be oriented around the Torah, right, the teaching of the law, and so all God's people were called to the law. I mean, think about that passage I just preached in Isaiah, you know, Isaiah says, you know, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this, it is because they have no dawn, they have no future, they have no hope, you see? So everything must be according to the law. 
Uh, now, of course, in the New Covenant, we would say, well, now everything has to be, you know, in accordance with the law, yes, but the law as re in relationship to the law of Christ. In other words, how the law has not, I don't want to say the word changed, but how the law has now been sort of uh, altered through the New Covenant work of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, and things like that. But at the, the essence of it, the principle of it is the same, is that Submission, obedience to leadership extends only as far as we're talking about biblical commands and biblical imperatives and the biblical law. That's it. Anybody else? Question on that? You sure? No question is dumb. No question's out of bounds. No question is unwanted. Okay? Uh, this is supposed to be really practical, and so I want to make sure to keep it that way. But as you can see from the text, um, the, the, the empathy here is that they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That gives us the spirit of submission. The submission should be voluntary because of, look at what's at stake. What's at stake is the eschaton. You notice that? Uh, I don't know if your mind went there, but that's what, the, that's what is at stake. What's at stake is the eschatological assize judgment that is coming and that we submit to our leaders, to our elders. In a sense, it's your pity on me that I have to give an account for you. <laughs> and so recognizing that we're heading towards, you know, Jonathan Edwards, um, he was kicked out of his congregation. You guys know the story about Jonathan Edwards being kicked out of his own church, right? Jonathan Edwards was kicked out of his own congregation there in Northampton, uh, New England, because he differed with his grandfather, Solomon uh, uh, Edwards, uh, 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 that what happened was is that his grandfather had uh, open communion and Edwards wanted to have closed communion. And so the church voted him out. <laughs> See ya, right? And, what, and, and if you ever, and Edwards preached a farewell sermon to his church. It's really profound. And in the sermon, he tells his church, uh, this is a little momentary parting. We will meet again at the bar of truth, at the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, that's where we'll settle all account. Wow, you know? I mean, talk about a prophetic way to leave church. But, but, uh, but, but that's right. You know, we're all heading towards this judgment. How about a verse on that? Second Corinthians chapter five, I think it is. Yeah, verses nine and ten. Uh, you guys like to study Pauline theology. I love Pauline theology. Some of the best books you'll ever read on Pauline theology would be books like uh, Herman Ritterboss. Uh, an outline of Paul's theology, maybe George Ladd on Paul's, Paul's theology, uh, Voss, of course. I only mention that to mention that in these theologies, you will find repeatedly uh, one of the main governing principles of Pauline thought, Pauline theology, was this constant refrain in the Apostle Paul, this constant awareness and sensitivity to the final day, to the great assize. And it's here, 2 Corinthians 9, uh, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore, uh, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, which means either uh, alive or dead, um, he says, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Wow, sobering. And you thought judgment was just for unbelievers, right? Uh, Paul is saying, there is coming an assize for my ministry, but for all, everyone has to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
And uh, I was thinking about this on the way to church actually today, that we will all pass through the fire. I'm thinking, that is so terrifying. How do we not just, you know, be grippled with fear? And I thought, oh, well, walk in holiness and you won't be crippled with fear. Uh, Yes, sir. Right, and it's not a fear of hell, but it is a fear of being examined by God. Now you, have you ever been pulled into a meeting with the elders where the elders have to question you about something? It's kind of fearful, right? Um, and some of you are like, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Imagine being pulled in by God and having God question you. I mean, you know, you're not afraid that the elders are going to harm you in some way, right? But it's still fearful because there's a lot at stake. It's a sober serious thing, but uh, imagine God being the one to come in and examine you, and I tell you what, at that point in time, you would want nothing else in the whole world, brothers and sisters, but to be found in Christ, to be found in Him, so that uh, you have great confidence towards God, as even as the book of Hebrews teaches. So, okay, I better, um, I, I, I was I was telling myself, I, I got to be careful not to do a whole exposition of this verse, because then I won't get anywhere. And uh, bad enough, I didn't finish all my slides last week, but, uh, but notice there, right, the, the imperative there is to submit and to obey. Why? Because we keep watch over your souls as those that have to give an account. And I love that because that, that grounds everything in truth. Uh, we, we watch over your souls as those that have to give an account, and so we, uh, if the elder knows better, he better not go astray himself. He better not lead you in such a way that he doesn't want to give an account for it. You know what I'm saying? There's a, there's, a, there's a dual accountability here. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. And so don't grieve your elders. Don't disobey your elders. Don't go astray from the things that they teach and they command, as long as it's according to Scripture. Why? Because they'll get mad at you. Is that what the text says? It's not what the text says. Why? Because they won't be pleased with you. That's not what the text says. The text says is this would be unprofitable for you. And so I have seen throughout the history of my, my pastorate is that when people go against the desires of the, and I've seen this repeatedly, not on everything. Again, we're not talking about trivial things. We're not talking about secondary issues or whatever, but we're talking about serious things where people decide to, in a sense, buck the advice of the elders and say, well, I'm just going to do my own thing. You know, I have seen repeatedly just in all truthfulness, I have seen that that turns out not to be profitable for those people and that it's not, it's not advantageous for them. And uh, I, I can tell you story after story, but I don't want to sit here and tell nothing but stories. But, uh, but uh, when it says here in, verse, uh, in, in this verse, they keep watch over you. Just did a study on here because the Greek word that he uses there is the word, according to the BDAG, uh, well, agrupneo, that Greek word, is to be vigilant and aware of a threatening peril. Wow. To be vigilant and aware of a threatening peril. And so one of the things that a pastor is tasked to do in this overseeing, in this watchfulness, is we need to watch for perils that our people can fall into. Okay, perils of this, perils of that. Perils theologically, perils morally, perils uh, in your conduct, perils in your decision-making. I remember, brothers, I told years ago, don't go into business together because as I understand it, no one's a boss, and it's equal, equal, okay? Uh, they didn't listen to me, and they ended up, they ended up suing each other. 
Okay, so, so peril, I see a peril in your way. <laughs> you know what I mean? It could be something like that. Of course, sinful things are obvious, right? Don't go into that relationship because it's sinful. Don't go into that partnership because it's sinful. Um, things like that. Theologically, don't go into that theology because it's perilous. Um, I remember years ago now, um, a theology that was blowing through our old, the old church where I was a part of, um, and it was, the theology was essentially undermining the imperatives of the New Testament. Kind of a deep story, but basically it was deep theology that had to do with a Lutheran view of sanctification where the emphasis was on simply the glorious liberty of Jesus Christ. You're righteous in Him. Don't turn the New Testament into a new law. And when that ended up having, what that ended up looking like was that the imperatives of the New Testament were not that important, <laughs> okay? This was literally flowing in little pockets in the church. And, uh, and that led to uh, some pretty bad fruit. Uh, and that led to having to do sermons on it and teachings on it. And God in his providence, I still remember, this is a funny story, but God in his providence uh, brought in Phil Johnson. You know who Phil Johnson is, right, from Grace to You. Uh, I don't know, we did a conference or something, and he, 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 uh, he agreed to preach for me. And I didn't tell him what to preach. And guess what he preached on? The imperatives of the New Testament. <laughs> and he came in there and did a whole exposition on why the imperatives of the New Testament are critical for your sanctification. I mean, it was like, yeah, almost made me a charismatic all over again. No, just joking. <laughs> okay, so uh, what, are, what are elders and what do they do? Uh, well, what are elders? Well, elders are God-appointed shepherds. Oh, here, turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. Uh, this is a glorious text because in... The New Testament, of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to Jeremiah 3, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, the New Testament pastor is called a new covenant minister. And I believe the new covenant minister is prophesied about right here in Jeremiah chapter 3, uh, verse 15, as new covenant realities are being progressively taught throughout the book of Jeremiah until we arrive at the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. But here he says, look what he says. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. And of course, if you do any study in the gospel of John there at the end when Jesus tells Peter after his restoration, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, right? Remember that? Uh, most commentaries will go back to this text right here in, in, uh, in Jeremiah to show that this is actually the fulfillment of what Jeremiah was talking about. New covenant shepherds that will sh faithfully shepherd the flock of God. And Peter was like a fulfillment of that very thing. But that is what the new covenant shepherd is to do. And he is to be. He is a God-appointed leader, um, which is amazing to think about. Uh, this is something that both of us have to embrace. And I say that for two reasons. Number one, uh, sometimes uh, people can think that a pastor is just like a, a vocation. He's just doing a career, just a calling in that sense. And, take, and they, they sort of eliminate the element of the providential that God has providentially put these leaders in place 
right? He is the one that rose them up, qualified them, endowed them with the gifts necessary uh, to do and to engage in pastoral ministry. And then the pastor himself also has to understand that his appointment is an appointment of God. He's under this divine vocation of God. Also, they are servants of the mysteries of Christ. And for that, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 to show you that what we're handling, what we're ministering, a lot more of this next week, but what we're ministering is the mysteries of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, if, you, if you ever want to study seriously pastoral ministry, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 through 5 becomes essential for understanding the pastoral ministry. Uh, but look at what he says here. He says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. You've got to be able to trust someone with, to handle the mysteries of God. What are the mysteries of God? What are the mysteries of God? I can see like a bad commercial on TV. Learn the mysteries of God, you know. <laughs> Salvation, anyone? Yes. What's that? The gospel, I think that would be my answer. Anybody want to add to that? No? The mysteries of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The gospel, the mysteries of God. Uh, I would say the only thing like when it comes to the mysteries of God, it, 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 every time that Greek word mysterion is used, it usually always means something like that which was hidden but now is revealed ultimately in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that is the task of the new covenant minister to handle the unfolding of the plan of God and to apply that to the local church and to the, to the believer's life, right? And so that, that, that is, uh, you know, kind of what they do. So who they are, what they do. And, uh, and also here, also, uh, they are also uh, uh, teachers and preachers. Here, go to, first, uh, go to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, just to see this. But, but uh, you know, this is, a lot, uh, of, this is a lot of what pastoral ministry consists of, of course. Um, but it's important that we understand the different aspects of pastoral ministry. Typically, people think of pastoral ministry. I know I did. Before I was a pastor, I would just... Look at my pastor preaching, and I just marvel at him preaching up there. And just all I would think about is just like, oh man, I want to do that. I want to get up there, and I just want to herald the word of God. I would love to do that. And little did I know, that's very little of what, what a pastor actually does. <laughs> you know, it's a lot more than that. We don't see all the other, you know, hours of the week that go into that one moment in time. But uh, but there is this element of teaching, right? First, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, and many commentaries would connect those things very closely together, almost, uh, almost as if uh, their teachers is explaining the role of what a pastor does, okay? Maybe, but definitely the close connection there between pastoring and teaching. And uh, maybe another passage just to illustrate this, look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. Colossians 1, verse 28, he says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Uh, of course, they're every man. Uh, don't be gender sensitive here. Uh, that's just, <laughs> okay, that's just the way the New Testament speaks of mankind or people. Okay, uh, but uh, uh, but ultimately the role of a 
of a pastor is to engage in teaching. Be careful when you see pastors that are not teaching. Preaching, but not teaching. Sweating, but not teaching. Yelling, but not teaching, right? Crying, but not teaching. Emotional, but not teaching. Encouraging, but not teaching. You know, smiling. How does Joel Osteen do it? Yeah. <laughs> but not teaching. See, the, the pastoral ministry is all about opening the mind. It's all about increasing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's about growing in your discernment, becoming enlightened, illuminated by the text of Scripture. That's what the pastor is supposed to be doing. So when we first moved to Texas, you know, Trish and I, we visited all these churches trying to figure out a church. We go to these nice churches, you know, it's nice, you know, beautiful, Sony quality worship, you know, uh, everything was nice, you know, beautiful furniture and all of that. We get in the car and she's like, that was so cool. Those people were so nice. You know, that guy was, and I would ask her one simple, and she'd always be like, oh, you have to ask me that. I always ask her, what did you learn? Hmm? Did you learn anything in church or was it just a big rah, rah? And, you know, uh, uh, so, so I'm just saying at some degree, uh, the shepherd, the pastor, the pastor and the pastoral ministry must involve didaskalos, teaching, catechizing, growing propositionally in truth. Anybody have a question or comment on anything about the teaching ministry? Uh, you guys are like, yeah, we got plenty of teaching here. Yeah, I think we do. I, I really think we do. I, I think that's a perfect balance if you, if you look at what Paul says there in Colossians. It's a perfect balance to pastor. It's, a perfect, it's, like, a, it's like a checklist. It's like, it's like, you know, you want to be a good pastor, you need to be doing the above. You need to admonish. So be careful that the pastor is not just teaching. Huh? The pastor is not just a lecturer. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, in his book, pa uh, Preaching and Preachers, or how does it go? Preachers and Preaching or Preachers and Preaching? Or Preaching and Preachers. I, I always get it wrong. But Lloyd-Jones, in that book, he has a whole section, uh, uh, preaching is not this, preaching is not this, preaching is not this, preaching is not that. And one of the things that he says is preaching is not lecturing. It's not just getting up there and giving a sophisticated lecture on something. Uh, if it lacks the element of admonition, Rest assured, you are not listening to biblical preaching. It has to be admonition. So isn't it amazing? So many people fall off on one side of these things. Either it's all admonition, you know, it's just all just laying on you real thick about your obligations <laughs> and what you're not doing and what you need to do, right? And very little about the Greek text or what this word means or how Paul's using this or, or, or the background of this or nothing like There's nothing, none of that. Uh, that, and that's imbalance. And so there has to be admonition, teaching. Watch this now. There also has to be wisdom. You see, because anyone can communicate propositional truth, but I'm convinced now over years of doing this, is that there also has to be an element of wisdom in the way that you do it. There has to be, in other words, to me, this would almost get to the manner of the preacher, that he does it in wisdom and not just hauls off intellectually always you see that makes sense everybody kind of 
See what I'm saying there? And then uh, last one here is that what are pastors? Pastors are shepherds. And so turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Pastors are shepherds. And then we're, we're going to develop actually this point because that's really the heart of this. Is uh, In saying that pastors are shepherds, uh, that kind of sets the tone for ecclesiology in general. Look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders, notice it's plural, among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Oh, consequently, notice that the, notice that the apostle Peter here calls himself what? An elder. Did you catch that? So here you have an apostle calling himself an elder as well. That becomes important for some uh, sentences we're going to look at here in a moment. What time is it? Yeah. Okay, uh, so, uh, you know, he says, as an elder witness of the sufferings of Christ, a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd, and that Greek word there, shepherd, is actually imperative verb. It doesn't look like it, but it, it, that's what it is. It's to shepherd, or shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. In other words, it can't be forced your ministry can't be forced, and your shepherding cannot be forced. Uh, brothers and sisters, I will give you counsel. I will tell you what the Word of God says, but I will not work harder for your sanctification than you will. Okay? I will not run around and be your Holy Spirit or your Pharisee. Uh, I will tell you what the truth says. I will, I will tell you what the imperatives of the Bible say. I will tell you what the commands of Scripture say. But I will not call you at 7 a.m. in the morning to say, did you do what I told you to do? There has to be an element of we are the flock of God. <laughs> you have the Spirit of God within you. Last time I checked, you have the power to fulfill the things the Bible tells us to fulfill. Not perfectly, but you have the power to obey. And so, you know, it can't be this compulsory thing. The pastor cannot be under compulsion to pastor, and the sheep cannot be under compulsion to be the sheep. We have to do it voluntarily, according to the will of God. And then, again, not for sordid gain. This gets to the motive of the elder. Um, hey, let me ask you guys a question. When does it ever become... Do, do you ever wonder about that? What does it mean, sordid gain? Can you tell me? Anybody tell me? Landon, do you know? Sordid gain. What kind of gain is he talking about there, do you know? Financial. Did you say that, Russell? That's what he's talking about. <laughs> He's saying, don't pastor solely for financial gain. And let me tell you, as a pastor who's not a wealth and health prosperity guy, <laughs> right? That becomes a temptation. And let me explain how the psychology of this works. I'm not psychobabble here, but you know what I mean. Like how, how you work through it in your mind sometimes as a pastor is that you can go through skids, you can go through seasons, you can go through, you know, uh, uh, times in your life as a pastor where you become disillusioned with the pastoral ministry. You know, you preach a thousand sermons, you almost don't know who you are anymore. 
You know, that can happen very easily to you. You know, go through a hard season, you're depressed, you lost a family, you went through a hard church discipline thing, there's a division in the church, you know, uh, the finances are not there, you're having problems with this, problems with that, and then you've got your own family, your own marriage to think about. You know, the multiplicity of things, and the next thing you know is, well, I'm just hanging on because it pays the bills. That is not a good motive to be a pastor. And that is something that I welcome accountability just, I welcome accountability in that area. Say, hey, Pastor Emilio, hey, man, are you sure you're not just doing this to pay the bills? You know? I've said this before, and I still maintain this, and sometimes I feel like weary as a thread, but if I ever stop truly being in awe and in wonder of what I'm preaching and what I'm teaching and the, serve that, and the Lord that I'm serving, something is wrong, and honestly, I have to stop. Because if I ever stop truly being in love with what I'm doing and who I'm doing it for, I've lost the, the reason for which I'm called. It cannot be for sordid gain. And that, just, that doesn't just mean for a million bucks, like you see you know, the, the, the TV people do, right? It can, be for, it can be for just a minimal salary. But you're doing it for the salary. Uh, what Peter, Paul addresses this. Look at Galatians chapter 6, I think it is. He actually addresses this, right? Peter, uh, Galatians uh, chapter 6. Understand what's going on here. Uh, Paul is here uh, commending the church. Uh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no, no. That's the one where it talks about sharing all good things with those who teaches you. No, no, no. I'm thinking of Philippians. Isn't that right? Philippians chapter 4. It's just a text that I thought about, but Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. How's that? That work? <laughs> Philippians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, for even in Thessal Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. I understand you know, Paul here is under house arrest, and so this is an incarcerated apostle needing gifts from the church, financial gifts to take care of him, okay? And he says, not that I seek the gift itself, he says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And we are told in Acts that Paul walked with a perfectly clear conscience in the ministry. And so when he says, I don't seek the financial gift itself, I seek the profit that comes to your account, he means it. And he's honest about that. And so that's where a pastor always has to B as we're really low on time. Next, what are elders and what do they do? Well, I thought um, in order to understand eldership, uh, a good place to look would be at the titles for eldership, which is, uh, you know, uh, this uh, PowerPoint that I did right here, because I don't have enough of a tech-savvy way of doing this or whatever, uh, all, the, uh, all the Greek words that I was trying to put in here, they all came out as caps, they all came out in capitals, and so, anyways, I don't know, but uh, it doesn't work. So what I'm saying is that elders, you know, presbyteros, uh, overseers, episkopos, and pastors, poimain, you know, those Greek words referring to the pastoral ministry should tell us very much so what pastoral ministry is all about. Elders, meaning that they are the governing body. They are the ones who are tasked with the authority of ruling, leading, governing the church and overseeing the church. Overseers. 
overseers is the concept of uh, supervision, that we provide spiritual supervision. And just those two uh, terms put together, you know what that means? Since this is supposed to be practical ecclesiology, what that means is that the buck stops with the pastors. They are responsible for everything. And so sometimes y'all may see Lynn and I, we just not sure, just kind of move a little bit slower, make sure that this is the right decision, you know, make sure this is the right teaching we want to do, the right person we want to put in this place, right? right? Why? Because if some, whatever goes wrong, the buck stops with the pastors. They are responsible for it. At the end of the day, we will give an account for every last thing that happens uh, in the church. Uh, Russell just sent me a, a, an email to me and Lynn said, hey, I see some charges on the credit card here. Boom, 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 like four charges, right? Russell or something like that. And he's like, what is this? You know what I mean? Russell is, uh, you know, he is, he, he's our church treasurer. He keeps all the books and does all that great stuff for us. And, uh, and I don't know what it is. And so until we find out what those charges are, you know, it's like, uh, you know, Russell's not going to stop like a pit bull. You know, he's going to hold us accountable. <laughs> and he should, you know, and that's why he's doing what he's doing. Uh, so, you know, because those charges and all charges and all decisions and everything that we do, the buck stops with the pastor. And then the word pastor, poimen, is the Greek word that means shepherd. And so the pastor, there is the element, there's the spiritual uh, sort of involvement in the people's lives. Okay, quickly. What's our view of eldership? Remember I did this last week? I gave, you, I gave you sentences that I've actually heard people say that are not healthy. And these are some other ones. Number one, why do we need elders? <laughs> this is kind of obvious, right? Uh, why do we need elders? I've actually heard people tell me that. And you know, and you know what? Even on a more, uh, maybe on a larger scale, uh, emergent churches are basically operating this way. We don't need elders. We just need to sit around in a circle and talk to one another. No one is higher than another. There's no monologues going on, right? There's no pul- get rid of the pulpit. You know, let's just do couches and no, no uh, auditorium seating. Let's do a circle where we can all gaze into each other's eyes. I mean, what do they do? I don't know. I saw one emergent uh, church service where they took communion with Doritos and punch. Anyway, yeah, so there you go. You know, that's what happens when you start breaking down the, ecclesio- the biblical ecclesiology of the Bible, right? Uh, how about this? Why can't women be elders? This is huge. This is, an, this is a not going away type problem. This is, this is an issue that is not going away anytime soon, and I don't think until the eschaton this will ever be fully done away with because there is such thing as liberalism and there is such thing as egalitarianism and there is such thing as feminism in our culture. Uh, you know, some time ago, I mean, this question would be completely irrelevant. It wouldn't even be asked. But in our modern, you know, postmodern, relativistic, feministic, liberal culture that we live in, it doesn't help that now we have a whole uh, assortment of liberal theologians who are egalitarian and who believe this. I mean, I had a brother that, uh, you know, was uh, letting his wife go to a church where she was attending a ladies' study or something like that, and the pastors of that church allowed the women on the, on the, uh, the what's it called, the thing you get in the church when you walk in? What is it? Bulletin, there you go, the bulletin. The bulletin, and in the bulletin, the women were called shepherds in the bulletin. 
and my buddy said, hey, you can't call women shepherds in the church. I mean, that Greek word means pastor, right? And so they fought him to, this is a true story, they fought him tooth and nail on this issue. Well, it turns out that church had a real, uh, somewhat of an association with John MacArthur. John MacArthur got involved, true story. He got involved, he called the church and told them, hey, take that out of your bulletin. So they took it out, the evangelical pope spoke, and that was it. <laughs> no, you know what I mean, it was a respect thing. They, re- they revere him, they respect him. And John MacArthur's right. He said, that's not a good title for your women's study, women's shepherds, you know, it's just not a good title. And so no, uh, why can't women be pastors for the same reason that not every man can be a pastor. You have to be qualified. And one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that you be a man who leads his home well. How can a woman do that? How can a woman be married to one woman? That's the requirement in the list. Must be the husband of one wife. How can a woman fulfill that? If, God, if Paul wanted women to be pastors, he would have said, and she must be the wife of one husband. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. So uh, that's something to watch out for. Uh, how about this? There are people I respect in my life that function as my elders. I've heard this. Remember we were talking about house churches or something last week? I've heard this time and again with house churches. Well, the people in my house are not really pastors, but they're kind of like my spiritual mentors, and they're like my elders. I mean, this is stuff you hear all the time, and it's crazy, but, uh, but that doesn't qualify as eldership. As long as I follow Jesus, I don't need a pastor. Why do elders need to have all the authority in the church? Uh, I was dealing with a guy years ago that was getting ready to go under church discipline, and after he gave his side of the story on something, then me and the other elder that we're pastoring together, he began to talk, and he goes, oh, yeah, that's right. You guys have all the authority. That is just not a healthy way to look at church. Um, you, you know what the reality is here? Is elders have no authority outside of the authority of Scripture. The only one who really has authority in the church is the head of the church, who is Jesus Christ, We are all under his authority, okay? And so everyone is under the authority of Christ, the pastor, the elder, the members, everybody. Any questions on any of that whatsoever, please? You sure you're thinking about anything? Don't hesitate, because then you'll make my class boring. Sure, yes, sir. I can always count on Cameron not to make it boring. Yeah, go ahead, Cameron. Well, exactly what I just said. I mean, it's just a matter, it's just a matter of um, what does Scripture say. Uh, typically, when I'm encountering somebody who's more of egalitarian, uh, my experience is, is that usually liberalism is never alone. There are other issues that are going on hermeneutically. And so a lot of times, a person who is so liberal has to suggest that egalitarianism is true Right, egalitarianism, meaning equal, right? That, 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 that men and women are equal in every way, meaning not only ontologically, but functionally or in terms of their roles. Uh, you know, I mean, even God's creation teaches us that men and women are not equal at certain levels, right? I mean, I'm not a mother. I can't feed a child. I can't nurse a baby. Does that make me inferior to a woman? Of course not. And so, uh, what, you know, so I would like to find out first 
what is their commitment to the authority of the Bible? Is the Bible the final authority for that person? Or have they allowed sociology and psychology and things like that, culture, to be an authority above Scripture? So I want to find out for that person first, where's your commitment to Scripture? I was preaching at a conference in Kentucky many years ago now. I think it was when I first started this church, when we first started Heritage Grace. But uh, I went, I did this apologetics thing, and afterwards we go, we have lunch. And, uh, and sitting in front of me is a young man, and I knew that something was wrong with him. <laughs> Just the way he was looking at me, like something's up. So I was like, hey, man, what's going on? What's your name or whatever? Well, okay, so he's like, oh, well, I've been dying to talk to you, and this is what I want to talk to you. You know, I'm an, I'm an annihilationist. And so I want to get, I want to pick your brain on the doctrine of annihilationist, meaning they don't believe that hell is eternal. Uh, they believe that, you know, uh, immortality is conditional. In other words, uh, the, the, the saved are immortal uh, uh, because they're saved, conditioned upon repentance and faith. But uh, the, the wicked and the unsaved, uh, they will be annihilated eventually out of existence. And so guess what my first question was to him? My first question was to him is, do you believe that the Bible is the final authority for all things regarding faith and practice, yes or no? And he says, yes, I do. But And then I started prying into his emotions. Did something happen? Did you lose somebody? Did somebody die? And lo and behold, yes. He lost a parent, uh, and he cannot fathom the idea that they are in hell forever. And so I told him, I said, you need to be brutally honest with me. Are you allowing your emotions to dictate the interpretation of Scripture? If you are, then you've picked a hermeneutic that's very dangerous because if emotions is the way that we interpret the Bible, we're in trouble. So then the feminist is going to want to interpret the Bible a certain way. The annihilationist is going to want to interpret. The universalist is going to want to interpret the Bible. You know, I can't fathom a God that won't save everybody. You know how many times I've been told that? Uh, But that is not how we interpret the Bible, and you know better than that. Um... Last couple things here. What's the biblical role, view of elderships? Pastors should play a role in your life. Uh, absolutely. Obviously, we're operating on limited authority, but we should be involved, I think, in the church's life. Pastors should have available, be available for spiritual maturity of the church. Pastors should cultivate the gifts of the church. And pastors should have enough time to teach all this, too. And we're out of time, so <laughs> I'll pick up. You know what? This is too important, and so next week, Lord willing, if there aren't any questions, maybe one more question, lingering question. Yeah? Let's say a man tries to become a pastor or bring the qualifications for a pastor, and he doesn't meet them, like maybe head counselor or something, but he still goes for that pastorate. To, to his own detriment. The danger is that that you have assured failure. Uh, Paul says if he cannot rule his house well, how can he take care of the house of God? The implication is he cannot. And so that pastor is heading into pastoral ministry knowing he will fail ahead of time. Uh, Somebody needs to speak wisdom into that person's life and tell them that, you know what I mean, unfortunately. So... (laughs) No, that's actually not hypothetical. That happens all the time, brother. Happens all the time. And, and it can happen even uh, when you start out well, but you don't finish well. So that's why Paul says all the time that I may finish my race well, you know, finish the race well, because you can start out well, and whether it's that issue or some other issue, and you don't finish well in the end, right? And so as Paul says, you know, after preaching to others, I myself, having been disqualified, you see, so, yes, sir. 
I wasn't going to do that because uh, the title of this sermon series or this Sunday school series is Practical Ecclesiology. So I was avoiding doing a whole systematic theology on ecclesiology. I don't want to do that. I, maybe we will in the future, of course, but I just wanted to walk through a lot of the practical, everyday things that we, that we do, okay? Uh, so uh, maybe for a future time we'll do something like that. So, but because uh, that's a huge, deep, profound study. <laughs> so, all right, guys, I am uh, in trouble.